Hello, everyone, and welcome to ClutchCast, a podcast created to guide and inspire student-athletes to reach their goals. My name is Dominic Prianti, and today our special guest is New York Yankees' own Ray Negron. Mr. Negron, thank you very much for taking the time to be with us here at ClutchCast. How are you doing today? Uh, I feel good. I'm on uh, uh, the uh, train headed to Florida. Because when I, when I don't have to fly, I don't. And I always remember that the Yankees back in the 20s and 30s, that's how Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig did it. So if it's good enough for Lou Gehrig and Babe Ruth, then it's good enough for me. <laughs> well, you just said one of the key words that has literally driven my whole life, the New York Yankees. But we'll get to that in a, in a second. I just want to tell you, it's truly an honor to have you on. Like I said, I, I've been a Yankee fan all my life. But more than that, uh, doing research on you and your story uh, is truly amazing, and I definitely think people should hear about it. I know many, many know about it, but maybe the young generations don't know. So let's start with this, if it's okay with you. 1973, right. what does that mean for you? For me, that was the year that uh, I was caught doing graffiti outside Yankee Stadium. And... Uh, I was, you know, I was there with some some guys, and one of the guys actually dared me, and so in essence, I started doing an NY on the wall because I was really, I had always been a Yankee fan. I loved the Yankees, and so I was trying to do an NY on the wall there, and all of a sudden, a car drives up on the sidewalk. Two guys jump out of the car. We all start to run. I step on one of the guy's ankles, and I go down, and I'm caught, and I was. Uh, taken to a holding cell and uh, left there because they were going to take me over to the 44th precinct, which is like literally a mile away or something like that. And uh, then all of a sudden, the two guys that had caught me came back and they got me out of the, they asked the police to get, to give me the, to give them the kid, which was me. Because they used to have a little holding cell, part of the 44th precinct inside the stadium. And so they took me out. They dragged me over to uh, to this room, which ended up being the Yankees locker room. And in walking into that room, all of a sudden I see all the uniforms hanging. So it was like, it was like walking into Oz. And uh, all of a sudden they're giving me a uniform and... That night, I was the bat boy for the Yankees because the guy that caught me wanted me to work it off that way. Huh. And uh, when when they left the locker room, the equipment manager, which was a guy by the name of Pete Sheehy, who had been there since the days of... Oh, who caught you, right? And I said, I have no idea. I thought, they two detectives? And he says, no. The, he said, no, the heavy set guy is George Steinbrenner, the guy that just brought the Yankees. And it was like, oh, my God, you know, and uh, after the after the game, you know, they, they had me actually work the game. I was the ball boy on the right field line. And after the game, uh, Steinbrenner came back and uh, he asked me that I like the job. I said, I love the job. So you want to keep it? I said, I would love to keep it. He said, okay, you're going to go back and you're going to talk to your guys that were with you. He says, I don't want to know their names because I don't want to get you in trouble. Just let them know that if you're going to keep this job, they got to do you a favor. If they're going to be loyal to you, they got to do you a favor and not 
not do any more graffiti at the ballpark. I don't care where they do it in the Bronx, but just don't do it on my on my uh, stadium. <laughs> and that's what happened. That was my first day. So, Mr. Negron, now fast forward to 2021. So many things that you're doing right now. You've been in movies. You've written books. You have written books. Uh, you have been on Broadway. Uh, you've worked with people like Chas Palmentieri, Richard Gere, Daniel Yellow, uh, so many people, right? Do you say that that was literally the turning point in your life that has uh, allowed you to do all this? Uh, you know, uh, when they say that, you know, I have been the luckiest guy, I, I, I have to agree with them because in my house, there were seven boys, okay? And of the seven boys, six out of the seven ended up living in this condominium and uh, across the water over there called Rikers Island, mm. okay? And uh, six out of the seven today are no longer with us, mm. you know? So have I been lucky? Man, like, like you wouldn't believe. And um, I was lucky because, you know, I had guys who became my big brothers, like Thurman Munson and Reggie Jackson and Kat and Bucky Dent. I mean, they treated me like a little brother. They protected me. You know, I mean, you know, Reggie, you know, you know, he's my son's godfather because of how he was with me, how he treated me. And uh, Billy Martin was a, truly a father figure to me. You know, he, you know, forget about it. And um, George Steinbrenner, what what can I say about him? He's talking about having two fathers. You know, when I went, when the fact that my father abandoned me and gave me up for adoption, okay, and uh, to, in essence, have George Steinbrenner just do everything he had done for me. You know, it, 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 it's a miracle, you know, and, and it's just like when Reggie Jackson was the biggest star in baseball at that time, you know, he was Mr. October. He was the biggest star. He was the Michael Jordan of his era, commercials and stuff like that. And he included those commercials and those commercials in turn, led me to uh, a fun part-time job in Hollywood. You know what I'm saying? It, it, it led me to a part-time job in Hollywood, which in essence, I ended up working with, with some of the biggest directors in Hollywood, like Francis Ford Coppola, Martin Ritt. You know what you understand? Big names, big names out there. Yep. And actually, I was going to bring that up right now. I told you I grew up as a Yankee fan. I'm still a Yankee fan. I'll die a Yankee fan. October 18th, 1977, big night. Number 44 hitting three out of the park. Uh, he was waiting for that knuckleball. He was so happy when he heard that Charlie Huff was going to be on the mound. Uh, I know you were part of that night as well. Can you tell us that story? Well, what had happened was that season, Reggie had not had a happy year in New York that first season. 
because he was fighting with Reggie. He set the he may have set the wrong thing when it came to Thurman Munson and and the the scenario yep. said that uh, you uh, I'm the straw that stirs the drink and you can only stir it bad. Yeah. To this day, Reggie says he didn't say it. And, uh, and that's all. I don't get involved with whether he said it, he didn't say it. I just knew that the two, two guys on the team that I loved the most, Thurman Munson and Reggie Jackson, were at odds. And I, I like to feel proud of the fact that Reggie to this day says that I was a big part in them making up and becoming close friends. And, uh, but anyway, getting back to that season, Reggie had not had a good time spiritually. And, but, you know, by September, things got better. You know, he, like I said, him and Thurman had made up. Billy was acting better with him. Not, you know, I mean, Billy didn't, he never liked Reggie and vice versa. But, uh, by September, things got better. And then when we got into the World Series, Reggie hit the first home run. And so I said, Reggie, take a curtain call. And Reggie said, no way. The way the fans have treated me this year, they don't deserve it, you know? And so Reggie hit a second home run, and I went up to him, and I said, Reggie, would you take one now? I said, no, no. So I said, if you hit a third, you will take a curtain call then, right? And he said, you're crazy but I'll do it, <laughs> you know, and he hit the third when he hit the third, you know, if you look at the videos, you know, the videos live forever. And when you, you see me going up to him and then grabbing him, you, I literally grab him. You see it in the video and I go to his ear and I said, Reggie, you promised <laughs> you would take the curtain call. So he looked at the crowd and he ran out and took the curtain call. And he has always said, I never, I didn't really want to take the curtain call, but Ray Negron pushed me out, oh. you know, and, uh, and I'm proud of that. Cause that's, that's my world series moment. If you know what I mean? Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know that I, I could literally re-see myself sitting on the living room floor on my, uh, black and white TV watching that game. I'll never forget that. And that's something that, you know, will stay in history forever. And, and for you to be part of that, that's also another, uh, uh, lucky and, uh, and, and really cool thing. It's a part of the long blessing of the 48 year blessing that I've been going through. And that night, Reggie Jackson ended up tying Babe's Ruth record, uh, for having three home runs in a single game in the World Series. And that brings right. me to a book that you wrote, which I'm not going to lie to you is, I discovered so many things out of it. The greatest story never told. Babe oh, okay. Ruth, Jackie Robinson. Right. Uh, right. The phrase at the end, what it's all about. Can you tell us about that book? Well, you know, uh, that book is based on fact. And uh, I was very friendly with Babe Ruth's family. Uh, I was friendly. I have been friendly with Babe Ruth's granddaughter. Uh, I was very, very close to Babe Ruth's daughter, Julia Ruth Stevens. And we used to talk to children together. You know, she would come to St. Petersburg, Florida, where I have my home. 
And uh, we would go to the old Huggins-Spangles Field where uh, the Yankees had their spring training all those years. And it's still there. And it's my my inspiration and motivation is because I go there. The city lets me sit out, out in the outfield and and I write my children's books there. And so she would meet me there and we would have kids from schools go there and we would talk to them about Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig and the and the glory of that time and the glory of what was on that field, Huggins Stangle Field. And uh so one time after I was doing a speaking engagement at some place in Connecticut, I believe it was, and afterwards uh I went to Babe Ruth's granddaughter's house and so, you know, we had a nice chit-chat session there. And afterwards, we went down. Uh, she said, would you like to see some of the babe's things that I have, his letters and stuff like that? And I said, man, I would love that. And she showed me letters and articles and all these different things on Babe Ruth. And uh, right then and there, what I got out of it was, I understood why Babe Ruth never managed, mm. and it wasn't it wasn't because he couldn't manage himself. That was a crock of crap. Okay, it was because the game essentially at the time was afraid that it had Babe Ruth become a manager, he would want to, in essence, sign as many black players as possible. And the other thing was that Babe Ruth, uh, like he used to barnstorm and play against black teams all throughout the country. That was put a stop to. So Babe Ruth in turn went to Cuba to play against blacks and and Hispanics over there and uh, just being the babe, you know. And uh, that's why I, I, I love the history the magnitude of Babe Ruth and why Babe Ruth, when, whenever anybody asks you who's the greatest player ever, it's Babe Ruth. Uh And not just because of what he did on the field, it's, it's because of what he did off the field and because of how he loved children so much and because how he loved black children so much because Babe Ruth used to go to a lot of black orphanages and schools and into the black neighborhoods and uh and spend time give of his time yes did he give of his money yeah but he knew his time and his heart was more valuable Absolutely. and that's what the babe did and uh i was very i, I was friends i i let me i'm not gonna say i was friends but i was friendly i was friendly with a gentleman, a great entertainer by the name of Cab Calloway. Cab Calloway was one of the great performers of the of the 1920s and 30s. He was a, a band leader, very respected. He was a big, big star in a club called the Cotton Club. Oh, okay. Yep. Okay. And you and you really and you really need to do your research on the on the Cotton Club. Because that's where all the great stars, yeah. anybody that was somebody would go up to Harlem to to the Cotton Club because all the great talent was there. 
uh, uh, blacks were, uh, uh, performed, but they weren't allowed to uh, to sit in the audience. You understand what I'm yeah. saying? Because it was white owned. Yeah. It was owned by the mafia, etc. And uh, so they did a very famous movie called The Cotton Club that was directed by Francis Ford Coppola. And uh, it starred Richard Gere and Gregory Hines. And I was given a part in that film. Okay. And that's where I, w- I would uh, actually start my friendship with Gregory Hines. And, uh, and I would become brothers with Richard Gere. We've had a relationship for like some 30 some odd years up to this day. And Richard has been there for me in so many ways. And uh, while they were filming The Cotton Club, I got to meet the great Cab Calloway because there was an actor playing him in that film. So Cab was there as an advisor, per se. And I got to meet him and we became friendly because he was a horse player. He loved gambling. Mm -hmm. And so I at the time I lived across the street from Belmont Park. So I would meet Cab at Belmont Park. And in between races, we would just talk and he would tell me stories. And he told me wonderful stories about Babe Ruth because Babe Ruth, you know, he was a womanizer. Okay. And he loved going up to Harlem and hanging out with black chicks. You know what I'm saying? And him and Cab. uh, Oh, and Al Jolson. You know that name? Actually, I do not. I did know the Cotton Club, though. I I didn't want to interrupt you. I do know the Cotton Club. Yes. Al Jolson was known as the greatest entertainer of his time. He was uh, actually one of the first guys to allow uh, blacks to perform on Broadway. Him and Cab Calloway did a movie together. He actually had Cab Calloway co-star with him. Imagine. Mm. And this is around 1932 that they co-starred together in a film. And I can't remember the name, of the name of the film, but if you look up Al Jolson and Cab Calloway's movie, you would see what it was. And so Cab told me some some beautiful stories about him and the babe and and how the babe really was and stuff like that. So I got to know people that really intimately knew him. And so in essence, you know, they say you should never know your heroes. Mm. But in no, in knowing the people that knew, really knew Babe Ruth, uh, I, I know that I would have been proud to have known him and not be afraid of my color getting in the way. Mm. <laughs> you understand what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, absolutely. I understand 100%. Can you tell us a little bit about him in the hospital and the visit to uh, Ebbets Field? He was suffering from cancer, and he had been in the hospital for a stay. And uh, while they were, you know, battling his throat cancer, he, in turn, left the hospital. You know, he left the hospital to go to Ebbets Field because he needed to be there to see Jackie. And, and uh, you know, and when Jackie came out, like, you know, they, they had eye contact is what happened, is that they had eye contact. The babe wished him well. And Jackie, in turn, was happy that the babe had been there for him that way. 
you know? So, and I thought that that was really a beautiful thing. The last line of the book, from what I know, is, we love you, Babe Ruth. After hearing you say all these great things about Babe Ruth, I almost picture you saying that to him. Am I correct? Oh, man, I, I love Babe Ruth. <laughs> you know, that's no question. You know, I mean, you know, coming at that, at the time that I was born and and being a Yankee fan in the 60s and hearing all the, the legendary scenarios and and then getting to know the family and just everything else and people that knew him, people that played with him, you know, I mean, because I was lucky enough to have been born early enough to know people that actually played with Babe Ruth. So, you know, it's just a beautiful thing. And then... And then the other thing is how he treated the Bat Boys in that era, <laughs> you know, because Babe loved the Bat Boys. So me being a Bat Boy, I was, I was always so very happy to hear the stories, you know. Yeah, and you actually took your story to uh, Broadway. Am I correct? I know that you had an amazing musician uh, work on uh, your, some of the music, Jose Feliciano. Can you tell us a little bit about the play? You know, we did a lot of off-Broadway shows with it, well, uh, quite a few. We've had, we've had it off-Broadway for three years to run on it one day, and, uh, and it was beautiful because I, uh, during that show, it was, a sh it was a show that was done for charity, and uh, we had Jose do music. We had Bernie Williams do music, and, uh, and then I had naturally... I had uh, a lot of great talent like Louis Guzman. You know Louis Guzman? Yes, yes. You know, we had Louis Guzman on there and uh, just just, just a lot of different people. And it was, and it was great. And uh, we were supposed to do two shows on Broadway last year and uh, actually three shows. And uh, unfortunately, the pandemic hit yeah. and we lost the date. So I'm hoping that to that we get that you know they're working on it right now actually and they're uh, my uh, the people that are producing it uh, are working really hard and they've got over 20 songs written by the people the the same people that did the Broadway play Beautiful the story oh, of wow. Carol King yeah yeah that was so a great they're, success they're too the ones that are actually working on yeah they're working on my on my show right now. And, uh, we just hope that I just hope that, you know, Hey, I get, uh, I get to see it before I leave this world. Now nah, we definitely will. We definitely will. We're going to have to go together to that one. If we may, uh, you know, you know, our common friend, uh, Lenny Randall, he always brings so much sunshine. So we have to be positive. And I do thank him again for actually putting me in touch with you and, and your incredible story. As you know, with Clutch Recruits, what we try to do, we tr we're trying to help close this gap and trying to help as many uh, kids as possible uh, try to reach their uh, college dream of playing in college, you know, by helping with uh, academics and uh, athletics. So we, we, we definitely try to do good as well in our community. Uh, talking about that, I just want to talk about your position right now with the New York Yankees. I'm, I'm the community consultant. Okay. And basically, see, the Yankees have a community relations department. They have a community relations director. By the His name is Brian Smith, who does a very fine job, deals with all the corporate and stuff like that. My position was created by George Steinbrenner, actually. And 
like he knew that I came from those streets and I, and I have a passion for my people. And the problem that I always had is like me, too many of my people fall through the cracks. Yeah. And in turn, I, I like to be able to find those people and help as much as I can. And, you know, people weren't eating people, were, you know, all these kind of things, you know, I mean, I don't like to put a label on what I do because George Steinbrenner used to have a motto and his motto was, you know, screw labels. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I understand. 100%. Like, right. And, and it's just like, uh, let me give you an example of that in sports and entertainment. You have a lot of people who aren't good at what they do from the standpoint of entertaining, but they want to be a part of it. Through the years, there used to be a lot of kids who would be outside the park and they would watch the players walk in and this and that over by the press gate. And these kids never got to go to the games. Yeah. Now I'm gonna now I'm gonna ask you, why didn't they get to go to the games? They live right there. They couldn't afford it probably. Thank you. And so in essence, through the years I would see kids and then I would look at the park and I would say, you know, this, the upper deck is completely empty. You know what? Let me get some of these kids and bring them upstairs. So I'd sneak them in the park. <laughs> and, and then there would be some, somebody that would go to the boss and say, Ray Negron is sneaking his friends in the park, Mr. Steinbrenner. What do you want to do? So he would say, Son of a bitch. <laughs> go, get, go get them and bring them over to me. And so then they would go and they would find me and they would say, yeah, Mr. Steinbrenner wants you. I think you're in trouble this time. You understand? <laughs> and, so, and so then they would bring me into his office and then he would say, okay, Chuck, thanks a lot. Good job. I'll take it from here. And then the guy would walk out. And so then we would close the door and the boss would go, how many? And I would say, I think about 13. And he would go into his pocket nice. and give me a couple of hundred bucks. And he would say, get them hot dogs and Cokes and whatever they need. And if you run out of cash, come back. And that's what would happen. You understand what I'm saying? I, I literally, I literally have a tear in my eye right now. I'm not even kidding because here's this image of uh, Mr. Steinbrenner having, you know, being so cold-hearted and so tough. But there are so many stories out there, and now we're hearing it firsthand of the big heart that he actually had. And I was, I, I, I didn't know the story, but I knew that it was going to end like that. And it, it's truly amazing. Are you still? Uh, helping the communities right now? Uh, I'm, I'm still the community consultant. I, I, I work directly under uh, team president Randy Levine. And I know that in 2007, uh, the Department of Homeland, Homeland Security honored you for your leadership, and especially in the Hispanic community, and the impact that you yeah. made on uh, American society. Uh, you're in a couple of Hall of Fames, actually. You're a member of the International Latino Hall of Fame and the Ted Williams Hall of Fame. And the New York and the New York State Hall of Fame. Oh, perfect. So there are a lot of Hall of Fames for all the good work that you've done, and this is all from an opportunity, and that's what we truly think as well. And, and, and uh, 
Latin Hall of Fame, which is located in in San Francisco, actually. Is that the same one as uh, the International Latino Hall of Fame, or is it something totally different? That that's a different one. Oh, okay, cool. That his, that, that's the his that's called the Hispanic Heritage Hall of Fame. Awesome. So th- then, this all started from graffiti and Mrs. Steinberg getting out there and actually giving you a chance. So we firmly believe that everyone has something in them that if given the opportunity and allowed to do so, they can do good and they can produce for themselves and for others. And like I said before, you are the true example of this. Uh, you're also um, part of the Hanks Yanks. Is that correct? It's a program that we, uh, we did in 2009. And uh, we've had we've had a hundred kids go to college because of that program. We've had uh, over thirty players get drafted into pro ball because of that program, and two made it to the major leagues. Oh, very so nice. Just to say that I'm I'm proud of that program. I'm I'm extremely proud of what it has represented, and um, you know. Uh, when Hank Steinbrenner died last year, you know, it was, uh, it was really, really sad. Yeah. You know, you know what I'm saying? Because, uh, he was such an integral part of it and the kids loved him so much. Yeah. And you, I have to be honest. I think I told you this off air. Uh, my son was lucky enough to be part of the Jesus leaders. And this is after also, uh, the retirement of, uh, Derek Jeter from the New York Yankees. But the Yankees have always been there for that organization as well. They seem to be really, really out there for anyone that uh, reaches out to them. Uh, what type of organization are the Yankees in this case? Uh, when when I go to speak at school with players, I try to embarrass them <laughs> by by letting them understand because they don't understand what they what they bring. And I always say, when you put on that uniform. It's, you're you're like Superman to these kids, and then the kids cheer loudly. Okay, and the kids when when I say that, I mean they they scream, they cheer and scream loudly, and it makes it makes these young players understand the responsibility because it is a responsibility. It's not just about playing on the field. When you're a Yankee, it's not just about playing on the field. But it's about what do you do off the field? Hey, you make you you're making a lot of money. I don't care. You're making a lot of money, so in turn, you need to be able to give back. And I don't mean monetarily. I mean from the standpoint of showing the kids that you're out there for them. You know, because when the kids see see you, it's like something that overwhelms you. Because I'll never forget when I first met my first player, I I was overwhelmed as a young kid. You know what I'm saying? Who was that, Mister? And, uh, and it's a, who was that first player? The very first player that I actually met was a guy named Steve Whitaker. Okay, you won't, you definitely won't know him. But the name is very familiar. You know, yeah, he was a he was a Yankee outfielder he was supposed you know like like everybody like every other outfielder he's supposed to be the next mickey mantle Mm -hmm. which naturally didn't happen you know but he was a yankee 
And so this, I guess this probably was 1967. And he came to my school, wow. you know, and I, and I thought that that was like, like so cool. Right. You know, and years, years later, I would actually get to meet his son who played in the minor leagues for the Yankees. Oh, wow. Wow. So th- that's amazing. So we actually got to meet Yankees before you became the bat boy for the Yankees. And just to go back to the, to the bat boy years, that lasted till 1980. Is that correct? Like if that actually lasted, I was doing bad boy duties up until 1981. Actually, 81, 81. But in 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 those years, in those formative years, I mean, you literally got to meet the well, at least for me, right? Because I'm I'm from that generation. Uh, like you said, you mentioned before, Thurman Munson, Reggie Jackson, Billy Martin, of course, Mrs. Steinberg, and any and everyone else. How was it in the dugout at that time? Hey. It was the greatest show on earth. Okay. It was like watching a, a four star movie every day. I could, I was always the first one in the clubhouse because I understood the magnitude of what was happening. You understand? The aspect of where I came from and where I was going, it was just overwhelming. And, and, it, and it didn't die for me, it just kept on getting better and better. Uh, and, and it just, I mean, it, 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 I was just overwhelmed by it. Yeah. You know, I thought it was, uh, I, I just thought it was, uh, it just, it just didn't die. It was just, I, oh, let me just say this. I would go home and sometimes things were not good at home. I remember one time I was hyper, I was hyperventilating for over an issue that was happening at the house. And it was sad. I saw my uncle punch my my uncle and his wife lived with us, so we had a, we had like thirteen kids in the house. Mm. You understand what I'm saying? Absolutely. Because uh, so I mean, it was literally thirteen kids and four adults. And one day, my uncle punched my he had he was an alcoholic. He was a womanizer. And he had, uh, with all the kids in the house, you understand what I'm saying? Absolutely. And one day, one day his wife said something to him and he literally punched her in the face and knocked her out. Mm. Do you understand? Absolutely. He didn't slap her. He didn't slap her. He punched her in the face and knocked her out. And, uh. And we were all brothers and sisters. You, under, you, you, you know what I mean? One we big all, family. Cause we, 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 yeah, we, we were that close because we had been together from birth, seeing each other. You know, when one was being born, my mother was at the hospital for, for my aunt. My aunt was at the hospital for my mother. We, the kids were, it, it wasn't like your typical aunt, uncle thing. They were all, we were all, Together, we were intertwined as brothers and sisters. And, uh, to, uh, I left the house and I couldn't breathe. I couldn't breathe. I was hyperventilating, and I jumped on the subway. And I remember what Steinbrenner said: "When things are bad at home, just come to the stadium." And I ran out of the house, and I jumped on the train, and I got back to the stadium. It was probably two in the morning. Wow. 
and the security saw me there and, you know, he just, you know, naturally let me do what I had to do. And I slept in the locker room. But the funny thing was the minute I walked into the stadium, I could breathe again. You understand what I'm saying? A hundred percent. Those are things you'll never forget. Actually, I was going to ask you, once you would leave the stadium and go back to your neighborhood, how were you seen? How were you seen by the other kids, your friends, and other one, other I, people I, from the neighborhood? Were you like I, a celebrity? I, I was, I was their hero. Nice. I was their hero, and uh, it, I was I I inspired them to play baseball. You know what I'm saying? And I and I knew what I what I represented to everybody in the neighborhood. You know what I'm saying? Because they was they were proud of me and every time something came out in the paper about me or that they see me on TV because Bill White, Bill, Bill, Bill White was a Yankee broadcaster. He was an all-star player. He was the president of the national league later on. But uh, whenever I would make a a good play uh, uh, on a foul ball, he would have them uh, play uh, instant replay. (laughs) There's the ball boys. You know what I'm saying? And so it was really, really cool. And so the, so everybody in the neighborhood would see that. Right. Players gave me the players would always gave me tickets for everybody in the neighborhood. Nice. You understand? Absolutely. The players would give me bats and balls and gloves, and I would take it to the neighborhood. Hey, I never sold a fucking thing. You understand what I'm saying? There were people that grabbed things and they would sell them and stuff like that. I grabbed things. They gave me things. I would get bats and everything else and take them back to the neighborhood and the kid. And they would knock on the door and they was like, what, what do you need? Take it, take right. it, take it. And, That's and, how it was. And, you know, and, uh, and we would go to the park when I wasn't bad boy. I was playing in the park with, with everybody. And, and you know, it's again, that that's how it was in my neighborhood. Well, let me, did you ever want to be a baseball player, professional baseball player? I got drafted in 1975 in the second round by the Pittsburgh Pirates. Oh, very nice. Very nice. Uh, I played one season. When, well, when I proved to America that I couldn't hit, I was back with the Yankees. <laughs> <laughs> but at least you got there, though. So that was a good thing, I guess. And and I think... You know what? That's, that's how I took it because uh, I... I as a player, naturally, you're dealing with all the haters. Oh, he sucks. Oh, he can't play. Or this and that. And my motivation was always, I'm going to show you that I can play baseball. I'm, gonna, you know, and and uh, in 1974, I had like the greatest year amateur wise that anybody could ever have. I was the best hitter by far in New York, so I was the highest drafted player. But you know, naturally, when I got there and and I saw the big curveball and I saw <laughs> a, a, a thing called a slider, uh, I just said, "Oh shit, I'm in trouble." This is a different world. You know, a different world. It was a it was a whole different world. I had a great glove, but at the same time, you got to remember, I was with the Pirates, right? And they were called the hitting machine. Yes, you know what I'm saying. Yeah. And they, I mean, you know, they had some great. My team, I mean. You know, half the players on my team made it to the major leagues. Yeah, and, and you know what? Even even though I was a Yankee fan, I used to love their uh, jerseys back then. The Pirates jersey it was really good, really amazing as well. But Mister Gordon, I truly think everybody has a calling in life, and I definitely think that you were definitely in the right place at the right time for so many people. I follow you on social media. I see the amazing things you do. I just want to bring up one thing, even though, even though like you said before, no labels are needed. I seen a minivan full of food. 
uh, that was going out to an organization out to the Bron- uh, out in the Bronx, if I'm not mistaken. The gentleman right. that was picking up the right. food, his name was Hector. And I know there was a participation from the Yankees, from Long Island Cares. Tell us a little bit about that. Like, even though being a great baseball star is important, but this is what truly makes a difference in people's lives. Well, you know, uh, you, you, as you know, this has been a hard time for people. You know, and, um, you know, you see so many people losing their jobs and um, no money and stuff like that. I mean, to see, I mean, to see people online waiting for food and sometimes they run out of food. And how do you tell somebody, I'm sorry, there's no more food. And then you wonder, are they going to eat tonight? You know, that's a horrible, horrible thought. In this country, I can't especially. Yeah. yeah, in this country, in this city, in the big, yeah. in the so-called greatest city in the world, and you have people going home crying because they couldn't eat? Yeah. Or, or they're crying because they can't feed their family? Yeah. That's not, that's not, that's not nice. And like I was saying, thank God for people like you and, and the organizations you help. I also saw other videos where you actually have a small warehouse, I think, full of food. I think you were preparing a, a dish of uh, rice, beans, and chicken. I mean, that was a pretty funny video. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, you know, yeah, again, you know, I got to thank the people. I mean, you know, people that I work with and putting these things together. I mean, this is, this is all volunteer essentially. And, uh, and they, those people work really, really hard, especially the older people, because they're doing it, you know, from the standpoint of their heart, not yeah. because they're making any money on it or anything like that, you know. And uh, and you know, it, it, it is what it is. And you know, and there again, I, you know, they, these things I learned from George Steinbrenner, because the one thing that he used to say, even though, like, you know, like number one. The first thing that he taught me, which was very important, is like I was a I was very very angry when I when I first got to the Yankees. I was angry about racism. I was angry about the aspect of people talking crap to me. Uh, I was angry about how this one guy who worked at Yankee Stadium treated me like garbage, man because of uh, the color of my skin or I don't know if it was the color of my skin but I remember one time George Steinbrenner like pulled me into his office because what had happened was as I told you I could play and so I would go out to and practice with the team the Yankees would let me practice with them nice and sometimes I enjoyed making great plays and hearing the fans cheer <laughs> you know I, it, it was really, really cool. Of course. And and so one time, Steinbrenner had left town, right? And I had made a couple of nice plays in the outfield. I was an infielder, but I loved going to the outfield and, and like, catch, you know, try to catch balls who were going to go out of the park, bring them back and stuff like that. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. And one, one time I was out in the outfield, and all of a sudden I see that guy who, who, he was, who worked there. And, uh, you know, he's, he was a higher, higher ranking official. And he literally walked in the outfield, grabbed me by the arm and walked me off the field. Oh my Lord. And, 
in front of the players, in front of the fans. He he, like literally pulled me off the field. We walked through the dugout. We walked past the Yankee locker room. He took me to the visitor's locker room. He took me to the back of the locker room. And all of the visiting players' shoes were like waiting to be shined. And he said to me, go, go shine the shoes. You should be good at doing that. And uh, I was like, you know, really in, insulted, embarrassed, humiliated. You know, I was crying. You understand what Absolutely. I'm saying? Absolutely. Uh, and I then all of, a, all of a sudden, Elston Howard had watched this. And he came after me. He walked into the locker room and he said, Hey, come on with me. And, and, and the guy says, Elston, what are you doing? He says, he belongs in our locker room. Elston, that, hey, you can't do it. He, he says, Hey, t- b- b- talk to George Steinbrenner about that when he gets back. Okay. Hmm. That's what Elston said to him. And he said, now come on with me, Ray. And he took me back to the Yankee locker room because this guy wanted me just to, he, to stay there. Right. And uh, and so when Mr. Steinbrenner came back, Elson went up to see him and told him what had happened. And so Mr. Steinbrenner called me into the office and he says, why do you think that happened? And I said, because that guy's a prejudiced SOB. And Steinbrenner says, do you think that's what it is? And I said, yeah. And he said, do you think that it could possibly be that he's just jealous of you? And I said, why? <laughs> I don't have anything. And he says, Ray, but you have me as your friend. And people are going to be jealous. And the one thing I want you to understand, young man, is that as you get older, you're going to find out that there's a very fine line between prejudice and jealousy. And you know what? One is going to hurt just as much as the other. And it was a very valuable lesson. So thinking back, do you think and, um, Mrs. Steinborn was right? Totally right. Hmm. But he never said that it wasn't one over the other. But he said, but just be on the lookout for that. You know, and, uh, and to this day, I never say the name of that guy. You know what I'm saying? I never mentioned his name uh, i mean i mean he's embedded in my brain because after after that steinbrenner like jumps his okay and he never messed with me again but he always gave me the look you know what i'm saying like it, he would see me and he would look and look at me in disgust he knew he couldn't do anything though so that's a great thing right <laughs> you know what i'm saying but but he did it to others right you know what I'm saying? But he did it to others, which disgusted me. I always said that I would never mention his name. And you know why I don't mention his name? Because he might have an, a, 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 a son, a daughter, a grandson, a granddaughter. And you know what? You don't want to think of your grandfather, your father that way. That's true. You know what I'm saying? That's very true. And just because he's a bad guy. That doesn't mean that those kids were bad people. Later on, I would meet his uh, his son, 
who was actually a very nice guy. When I met his son at that time, I felt bad. And, and, you know, I literally felt bad. I don't know why I felt bad, but I felt bad. And so I, I, at that point, I had decided I would never mention his name or anything like that. Because the kid was always very nice to me. Maybe it's a good thing that the apple did fall far from the tree this time, I guess. Right. I agree. And you know what? Talking about families, one of the things that transpires from your Instagram account as well is the love that you have for your kids. And uh, and uh, it, it just, it's just there. It's just live. And you want to talk to us about, a little bit about your family? Well, you know what? It's that I have four kids, and they're all really, really nice people. And, and, and it's ironic that two of them were... Two of them are police officers. Nice. You know, all three of them, because my other son, uh, who was a Golden Gloves champion, you okay. know, in the in the light heavyweight division, he works for UPS now. And, you know, when the things were really hot, he was one of the first guys always there and having to make those deliveries and stuff. So I always tell him I'm just as proud of you as I am of the other two. Absolutely. They've been out there from day one. Nobody's ever left their post 100%. Right, exactly. Mr. Gona, I have, exactly. a, I have a little question. I I need to understand this. I've seen the commercials. I've seen on your uh, reach out and uh, on your Instagram, H21 hand sanitizer. So besides being a sanitizer, it also does a lot of good. Is that true? Tell us a little bit about the model of this. What, what, what happened is the guy that owns the company is a guy named Alfred Zaccanino. Alfred has been a friend of mine who, when I did my very first book, which is called uh, The Boy of Steel, it was the international book of the year. Uh, my book beat out Gloria Estefan as the number one international book that year. Yeah, I didn't go to the event because I was embarrassed that she was going to take it. She was going <laughs> to win. You know, and, and I got a call from the event. Ray, you won. I was like, oh, my God. And so what happened was Alfred Zaccanino read book and brought, he had already done a movie called Clerks or Clerks 2, something like that. And so uh, he brought the rights to The Boy of Steel to make it into a motion picture. And uh, it didn't, it didn't, uh, for whatever the reason, uh, even though he had the right, they just never got to do it. But he had remained a loyal friend. And every time that there was like some charity or something like that, I would go to him and he would help me with whatever charity it was. Like for the last, I would say, 15 years, for the last 15 years, he has brought gifts for the poor in the Bronx on my behalf. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and uh, we would bring the players and stuff like that. And, and I mean, to different schools in the Bronx. And I mean, this is what Alfred has done for me. And so he started a hand sanitizer com company called H21, Hand Sanitizer and Wellness. Yeah. And so what happened was that last year, when Gio Urshela got to Colombia, he caught the coronavirus. Yeah, we remember. They talked about that. 
Okay. And so, uh, when I found out about it, because Gio, I'm a big fan of Gio Rochella, you know, because he became my go-to guy. I would go to him, Gio, I need you to go to the school. Gio, I know hospital. Gio, I need you to do this clinic. So when I found out that he had got, gotten the corona and, uh, and the people in, uh, he told me that people in, uh, in his country, you know, I said a lot of people can't afford food, let alone uh, wow. hand sanitizers. So I told Alfred, and he sent thousands of bottles to Colombia. And then not only did he send them to Colombia, he sent them. He also sent them to uh, Venezuela for Gio uh, for Calabar Torres. Yeah, you know, and uh, that's that's why, in essence, I support Alfred in every way that I can, and uh, and he supports me. He helps me as far as. We got we got all of those sanitizers all throughout the Bronx, the schools in the Bronx, et cetera. And that's what that's all about. Yeah, and actually what they do is they uh, for every uh, hand sanitizer purchased, they actually donate one as well. So that that's truly an amazing exactly. model. So definitely Exactly. So once again you're partnering up with uh people, good people trying to do good for uh the community, which is truly amazing. Uh Mr. Grown, to anyone listening to this. What should be the takeaway from this conversation that we had today? You know, we're, we're here for a very short time. You know what I'm saying? We're here for a very short time. And I would like for people to understand that so that after we finish up here, we have to answer to somebody as far as are we, did we warrant going to heaven? And I would really, in essence, have want people to understand. I do what I got to do because I really like to go to heaven. If there is such a place, I'd like to go there. I know we're going someplace like that, exactly how it is. I was just telling somebody today that, that like, you know, uh, somebody asked me, would you like to be cremated or buried? And I said, you got to understand that our bodies, like when we when we die, and we go to wherever we're going to the other the, to the other part of the universe that we're going to, it, it isn't the our it isn't our body that we see there. Like we're not gonna we're not gonna see, you know, like like when we go see Elvis Presley. We're well, not gonna see Elvis Presley, that really good looking guy that we you see the, the you see. Spirit and just spiritually, you know, who, you know who it is. You know that oh, here's my aunt, here's my uncle, here's my father. You know what I'm saying? You just know, but you don't see it. It's just like when you buy a can of Chef Boyardee, <laughs> the can looks really nice. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but you're not buying the can. You're buying what's inside the can, and what's inside the can tastes really good, but you throw away the can. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. And it's the same thing with our with our bodies. You know, it's the same thing. You just that you, you're throwing that away, but you know you're going to to this to this universe, this world, and live uh, an incredible, incredible life or whatever you want to call it. So, in essence, like I say, I'm you know I dragged this out, but I just want to be able to say that. I, I deserve to go there someday, you know? Well, 
Action. I deserve to go there. I, I like I like to, but you, you but like you said at the very beginning, you know. Listen, we we all we all do bad things. You know what I'm saying? We we, we do, we do. I mean, you know, if the Bible says that you know that you know we, we sin every day. You know, we sin. You know, it is what it is. But I just want to do. I I'm trying to do the best I can to be a good person. I just want to be a good guy. Like in, in, in my world, there are two things. You're either, you're either a good guy or a bad guy. If I say you're a bad guy, that's the worst thing that I can say about an individual. Yeah. He's a bad guy. That's so true. If I say that about an individual, then, then that's really, really bad. <laughs> you know, Mr. Negron, yeah. let me bring up a good guy, if I may, because I see him on your Instagram, and I know all the good stuff he does out in the neighborhood, and and I know I said I wanted you to talk to a little bit about a little bit about what should be the takeaway, but give me two more minutes if you don't mind. CC Sabathia, good guy, amazing good guy. guy, everything he does yes. for the community. Tell us a little bit about CC if you don't mind. I I've known CC since he's like eighteen years old, and uh, he's just has a very good heart. You know what I'm saying? He's he's a good person, good heart. He has a great wife and they've done they've done a wonderful job with their kids and they're always giving back. Yeah. Okay? And he and he's sweet when you talk to him. Like like if you look at my Instagram, there's a thing in there that I did with him. I did a little interview with him which I'm grateful that he thanks on the field, I saw that one. Thing. Yep, I saw that one. You know what I'm saying? But it's just the aspect that he didn't forget. You know, because a lot of people forget or they act like they forget. Right. You know? And and, and, and in this world, I never needed to be given monetary rewards. But I do love when someone pats you in the back and say, hey, thank you. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. Because most, most people in this world, they forget that. You know, George Steinbrenner is a man who was not afraid to get in his car and drive into the South Bronx and stop his car and get out and talk to a bum or talk to a, a someone that's not doing so good or to talk to someone that's just a regular guy. And, and never be afraid and make these people feel good about themselves. And, and when someone would say, George Steinbrenner, wow, what the hell are you doing around here? And he lives out and he would say, I, I, I have a house not too far away from here. Hmm. You have a house around here? Yeah. Yankee Stadium. 161st Street. <laughs> he was right though. He wasn't lying. Yeah, absolutely. No, absolutely, exactly, and that's why there will only exactly. be one boss forever, I guess. That's right. In the history of uh, MLB, right. because but. because you know what, someone once asked me, "Is there another owner that you know that would do that?" No way, no way, yeah. absolutely not. He broke every rule possible, and he broke those rules. Because he used to say to me that the hell with labels. Labels mean nothing. It's walking like, like again. Remember those kids that I would sneak into the ballpark? Yep. Like one, uh, one time for whatever the reason, he said, uh, uh, 
I want to do something with what do you call it? And, and, and I said, but those kids aren't affiliated with anybody. And he said, the hell with labels. You understand what I'm saying? That's actually a great saying meant- right there. I'm going to, uh, yeah. you know, we, we don't say that, but we actually, uh, you know, that's how we try to live our, uh, our organization as well, uh, like like you know, uh, once again, you know, with the academic and the athletics help and trying to just bridge these gaps that are there for these young men and women uh, just to reach the the next level. Uh, you know how expensive it is today, you know, even just getting tutoring, for example, or getting some help with fielding. I mean, not everyone could afford private lessons or uh, private tutors, and that's why you know we we try to do what we do and. Uh, let me say, and let me say that Lenny Randall is one of the truly one of the top guys that I ever met in baseball. He really, really has been. He's he has totally been different than most, and uh, just a wonderful, wonderful heart. And Billy Martin loved him with a passion, with a passion. He tells me, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, we were yeah, actually we were really actually on the did. phone. We were on the phone last night for another three hours. Uh, on the phone with uh, Lenny Randall and uh, Roberto Cabalisti, which was a pitcher for the Italian national team during the Olympics in 96 and, and Sydney in 2000. Uh, so Lenny is truly, like I said before, he's a sunshine of a person. He's always positive. There's no negative, And there's always a solution to everything and not just sit back and watch. Hey, when, when, when he got into a, a, a fight, a physical fight, with uh Luke with this uh manager yeah Lucchese Billy Martin called Lucchese because Lucchese was trying to really make a big deal out of it and Billy Martin called Lucchese and he said if you don't get off of Lenny if you don't get off of Lenny next time you see me so you know he loved him that's for sure yeah no that and that was Billy because Billy Billy was wonderful. The one, hey, the one story that I didn't tell you, real quick. Yeah, go ahead. Billy, Billy Martin. When I was going through my my thing with, uh, one time I had said I had had an issue again with that idiot, and Billy Martin said to me, uh, whatever he said, and I said, I wish I was white. Hmm. Billy got really upset with me. And a few days later, he took me to meet up with um, Frank Sinatra and Sammy Davis Jr. Uh, at a restaurant called Patsy's in the city. Absolutely. And uh, Billy, I mean, um, Mr. Sinatra really laid into me, laid into me. And uh, and he told me that Sammy Davis had once said that. He said, Smokey, didn't you once say that to me? And, and Sammy Davis Jr. started laughing and talking to me in Spanish, <laughs> and, uh, admitting to me. Sammy Davis' mom and grandmom were, were Puerto Rican. Did oh, you know that? No, I did not know that. Hold on. But was Sammy Davis at that dinner, too? Yes. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, the ver- so you had the, you had the Rat Pack almost there. That's amazing. No, I never met. I never met uh, Dean Martin. Dean Martin. I yeah. Never, yeah, I never got to meet him. But uh, I, I got. I, I was actually pre- I, not. I was. I was. I was friendly with Don Rickles. I loved 
Don Rickles. <laughs> really funny guy. He was, oh my God. To, to no end. To no end. Him and Regis filled him with good friends. Regis is a very good friend of mine. Wow, yeah. Very good friend of mine. Amazing artist. You know? Amazing but that, artist. But that's what happened with, uh, with, uh, with Billy Martin, with Billy and, and, and Mr. Sinatra. So it, you can understand why, in essence, I loved, uh, uh, Billy so much and, 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 and naturally George Steinbrenner because they always used to say to me, there is no place that you can't, that you should never feel that you don't belong. Okay. They used to always tell me that you belong. You, you, if somebody throws you out of some place and you didn't want to be there. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And you know what? Then all that boost in confidence, right? From all these great mentors. I mean, it's not a surprise that you ended up doing all these things. I mean, not just one thing. We're talking about books, movies, theater, uh, you know, acting, uh, consulting for movies, right? I mean, I think one of the latest uh, uh, collaboration before all this hit, you know, the pandemic hit, was the movie, um, hold on, it's right here. It's uh, Bottom of the Ninth. Is that correct? Uh, I, I was a producer in that. Oh, nice. And I, and I produced an animated film. Uh, called Henry and me. Yep. With Richard which, which Gere, based, Paul Mintieri. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And that was based on my first children's book. That's yeah. what it was really based on. Yeah. How did you, and, how, um, let me ask you a question. I'm sorry to, to, you know, we, we were going to close this a couple of minutes ago, but I, I, I just love talking to you. So you, you had people of the likings of Richard Gere, which you said you're friends with, you know, Chaz Palmentieri, which I also saw on your Instagram, Danny Aiello, Reggie Jackson, which we know you're friends with, and I think he's also the godfather to one of your children. Is that correct? Right, yeah. right. My oldest son. Yeah, you had Yogi Berra, uh, Paul Simon, Cindy Loper. How did you get this amazing group of people together? I just asked them. <laughs> <laughs> That's a simple you answer. Know, and, and, and you know good. what? It, it didn't hurt that I was uh, in, in it use, uh, honoring George Steinbrenner. You know, the, the film honors the boss and and these guys knew what the boss meant to me. And, uh, you know, when you see it, you see what I, you know, how I honor the boss in the film. Yeah. And we really appreciate the time that you put in today to this uh, for our podcast, Mr. Gorn. We, we, we wish you a great trip down to uh, Florida. And uh, I don't know if they served you dinner yet, but uh, what are you going to have? Just let us know. Uh, they, uh, I told, I asked the guy, what does he like? He said, I like the shrimp. And so I'll, he's going to give me like this shrimp meal. I'm going to see what it is. I hope it's good. <laughs> I hope so too. I hope so too. Well, Mr. Egron, thank you so much for your time and uh, thank you uh, for the amazing stories. And most important, thank you so much for everything you do, uh, you know, uh, for the amazing work you do hey, in the community hey. for everything. Okay. My brother. Thank you so much. Right, I really Talk appreciate too. it. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you very much to New York Yankees own Ray Negron for talking to us about how a chance encounter with Mr. Steinbrenner changed his whole life and transformed his career. If you'd like to find out more about ClutchCast, please visit us at www.clutchcast.com. Follow us on Instagram at ClutchCast Podcast and on Twitter at ClutchCastPC. ClutchCast is brought to you by Clutch Recruits. If you'd like to find out more about Clutch Recruits and how our programs can help you with your college recruitment process, please visit us at www.clutchrecruits.org or call us at 929-732-7848. Thank you very much for listening. 
until the next episode.